making sure I don't want to put that in the wrong place. Um, great to be with you um, here this evening. I think it's going, eh? Is it going to go? It's going to go. Yeah, oh, it's a good transition. I like that transition. Um, and I always love coming to Antioch um, and being here. And can I just suggest one thing? That as I, whenever I tell stories that sound sad about myself, um, I realize that there are two kinds of people. There are those who delight in that, and there are those who feel very sad for that. And I, and I just want to signal that um, you're more than welcome to laugh at my life. Just let rip. Do you know what I mean? That's the way I get through. So feel free to just sort of laugh about my life because um, it's a shame to waste it. Um, anyway, so I grew up uh, in a small farming village called Wakefield. See, this is Wakefield just out of Nelson. Wakefield, remember there were those fires that went down and Wake finally Wakefield had its uh, time in the light and um, had all the usual essentials of a farming town. There was a butcher and a foursquare. This is the foursquare, which is the one used in the TV ad campaign. Uh, very famous foursquare. Uh, vet church, there were um, four churches actually, of course, um, a pub, and there was this place here, Wakefield Primary School in Pink, because like, you know, Pink helps stop aggressive students and whatnot. And um, on the 26th of November 1985, and that's two days away, uh, I turned five. And mum made sure that I had my bowl cut, freshly cut. Uh, she packed me a tiny lunch. Do you remember your first day at school? Can you kind of, some of you, that won't be that long, long ago. Others, you, it'll be ancient history. But packed the tiny lunch. Um, I was so nervous, you know, put it in my little um, A-team school bag. Off we went. And I just remember feeling just so nervous because uh, it's like stepping into a new universe. Um, you know, what, what it would look like. And my head was full of um, lots of big questions. Uh, what would my first day away from my mum ever, quite significant, what would that be like? Hard to imagine. Would I be able to make friends? Uh, and I think the biggest thing that came to me was what if I needed to go to the toilet and I couldn't hold on and there was a disaster of some sort, which did happen. Um, a few times at Wakefield Primary School, but it built my character. That's why I'm here today. Well, Mum held my hand as we went into uh, Room 5. This is Room 5. I met Mrs. Hall and Mrs. Mokta. I remember I cried and begged my mum not to leave. And then when she left, uh, my bowl cut and I uh, got to uh, working the room. <laughs> now, um, Wakefield... Uh, school, Wakefield Primary School, it wasn't like all the kind of lame, soft, boring schools that you townies went to. Um, it wasn't like that. This was a country school. Uh, pet day was the one day when you had the excuse to bring your favourite cow to school and show it off. It, that literally happened. So that's not just a, that I remember bringing my cow and everyone else brought their cow and it was a very competitive um, thing on pet day. Um, and uh, I'm sure just like your primary school, all my classmates became known as walking one-line biographies, uh, which for some reason included their last names. And I'm not sure why that happens at school, but it was very important. There was uh, Craig Robbers, whose dad wasn't around anymore, and every day he cried and swore and was known as an infamous bedwetter. There was Amy Campbell, the beautiful blonde who smelt like strawberry shortcake dolls and would owe my heart, even if it was unrequainted until I was nine. Remember there was Verity Timpson, who had a face like a plate. Uh, which led to an unfortunate um, nickname, um, uh, Andrea Hux. Uh, she was one of my favourites. She was the class idiot who once admitted in front of the whole class she enjoyed the smell of sewage, which didn't go, which didn't go down well, and uh, it was a lesson for her. And Adam Black, 
uh, whose dad had gone on holiday for growing an exotic variety of tomatoes. And so everyone had these walking one-line biographies that you would know of. Um, but there was one very odd thing about Wakefield Primary School, and it was something that all of my five years of upbringing had never prepared me for. And that was how the kids worked out the social hierarchy of the school. And I didn't know that social... Well, I had two brothers, so I guess I knew something. And we had dogs, so I knew something of hierarchy. But I didn't know it extended to the whole world, social hierarchies. And uh, if the social order was based on bowl cuts, I would have been the Obama of Wakefield. But it didn't. And to be honest... Um, when it was revealed, when I found out what it was, uh, it didn't bode that well for my rise up the social ladder. You see, one of my first lunchtimes, I was eating my tiny peanut butter sandwiches and muesli bar uh, down the backfield, when I saw off in the distance, way off, quite a very long way, uh, a heap of my classmates, and they were all gathered around doing something. And a part of me, might have been the Holy Spirit, said, you want no part in this little Joshy, just stay here nibbling your sammies. But then this more curious part uh, bubbled up within me, and it said, what on earth are they doing over there? And so I decided to kind of just wander on over with my bowl cut go over, have a look, see what's going on. And as I got closer to the group, I could see that they were all lining up. But what for? I wondered. And why? And when I finally arrived, I asked Craig Robbers what was going on. It's the race, he said. What race? I asked. The race to see who's the coolest in the school, they do it every week. Right now, Dean Coleman is the fastest and Adam Black is the second fastest. Everyone says the faster you can run, the cooler you are. Oh. I gulped and sighed, because I'll be honest with you, I had big bones back then. And running fast wasn't exactly my strong point. In fact, um, as you may have noticed, I was born with my hips slightly rotated outwards, so not only was I a heavy-footed, sloth-like runner, when I did run, I looked somewhat special. And sure, uh, once I got my speed up, I had some momentum, but that normally required a high-powered water slide or a fast-moving vehicle. And Craig Robbers continued on. Last week I came last. Again, I usually come last. Mum says it's because Dad's not around to teach me how to do sportsy stuff. But that doesn't stop Adam Black from running fast. And then Craig began to cry and shout profanities about life. And I thought in that moment, you know, Craig, you could be the fastest kid in the world, but it's hard to imagine you being labelled cool. It would be so hard to imagine that. Now, all my classmates lined up for the race, and I didn't know what to do, because I didn't want to be, can you imagine, like I didn't want to be mocked for not being in the race, but I didn't fancy my chances of performing that well in track and field either. And it was about then I was regretting not jabbing myself with Dad's farm-grade steroids that he used on the cows with scabby mouth. But as I took my place alongside Craig Robbers and the other kids, um, 
a small voice came into my head. And you may have heard this small voice. And it said, all it takes to be a winner is just to believe in yourself. Isn't that lovely? You can win this thing, little Joshy. It said. And uh, my mum had a favourite mantra for me at the time, which was, big is beautiful. Isn't that nice? She has a parent now, I realise it's so sad that she had to say that. And, uh, and that kind of came to mind, and I felt bolstered. And I thought, yes, big is beautiful, and fast, and sleek. Ready? Steady. Go. And I just put my head down and began to run for my life and I could feel the wind blowing through my hair and my feet were pounding the dry grass and the sun was glistening off my sweaty forehead and I knew, I knew in that moment, I just knew it, that I had this real chance here. And it was in that moment that I realised I was not a race runner. Uh, Dean Coleman and Adam Black pulled out in front uh, and then a few seconds after that, uh, 10 uh, other kids overtook me. And then about five seconds after that, um, Craig Robber uh, overtook me. And I remember he had a strange smile on his face, and he called me something rude that I'd never heard um, before. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, Craig, for a fellow outcast, that's not very encouraging. Anyway, after a grueling three minutes... I came in a very last, last place. Uh, I had rewritten the book on finishing last. Finally, Craig Robbers had someone he was cooler than, so there was some good news in the story. And at the finish line, though, as I got near to the end, I could see all of the boys were waiting for me, laughing, uh, calling me names. And I remember for the next week, I became the bottom trawler of the social order of Wakefield Primary School. I was officially the slowest moving land mammal at our school. And you know, uh, that incident was such a formative story for me. And it shaped so many of my own assumptions and feelings about what it means to fail. Losing in that way was so humiliating. Uh, and looking back, I realized that experience caused me to often pull back from taking part in public endeavors where I might fail. Failure was a humiliating thing to experience. And so my childhood subconscious decided to protect me from it, so I never had to be humiliated like that ever again. And it's interesting having a series where we're talking around hard things. We often think about hard things in terms of ideas, but there's nothing much harder than failure when it comes to your life. What does it mean to do that? But I realize I'm not the only one who's had experiences like this. And in fact, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think uh, we encounter a story that might be an even bigger failure and a more humiliating one. Uh, than mine when I was five. You see, Jesus and his disciples had just fed the 5,000, and as soon as the meal was finished, Jesus had insisted that the disciples get in their boat and they go on ahead to the other side of the lake while Jesus would dismiss the crowds. 
And once the crowds had gone, Jesus had climbed the mountainside so he could find some solitude and pray, and he'd stayed there alone uh, late into the night. Well, uh, meanwhile, the disciples' boat was now deep into the lake, so they'd taken off to try to get to the other side, and the wind uh, had come up, and was blowing against them. So if you can imagine that they're sort of trying to get over the lake and the wind is now sort of battering them, pushing them back in the middle of the lake. Um, And uh, at about four in the morning, and that seems quite late to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've ever been in the boat. I'd be thinking, this is taking longer than I thought. And about four in the morning, they're still battling away. And just imagine this. So you're in the boat. It's four in the morning. (laughs) You're probably feeling, you know, all sorts of emotions, wouldn't you, about that situation. And then off in the distance, you see the most unlikely thing. And uh, what is that unlikely thing? Well, you're in the middle of a lake. Just just for reference here, you're in the middle of a lake. So there's certain things you might expect to see in a lake. But what you don't expect to see is Jesus. That's a surprise. And Jesus is um, uh, coming towards them, uh, walking on water again. A surprise. Didn't know that was in the arsenal. Just this is hard to. I once had an experience when I was in, growing up in Nelson where I came around um, Rocks Road, which is the beautiful way if you want to go, and it was after a gig and it was midnight. And as I turned the corner, um, in front of me, it was a foggy, foggy evening, midnight, about half past 12. In front of me, hovering in front of me, was a, a UFO. So it was very large, right in front of me, hovering in front of me, is this UFO. And um, I remember the feeling of trying to work out what I'm seeing. Does that make sense? I'm in full panic. You know, you go, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I go, oh, it's the KFC bucket. Because they had a very big KFC bucket, and it was a very foggy night, and you couldn't see the KFC bucket. You could just see these lights streaming out of the bottom of the bucket. But for that 15 seconds, I was looking at a UFO, and I didn't have a script for this. Does that make sense? I was like, I don't have a script for this. UFOs, as it turns out, exist. What do I do? Are they going to, right? And that's what it was like for the disciples. They didn't have a script for this. Jesus is walking on water. How do we make sense of this? And uh, they're scared out of their wits. It's a ghost. Um, but Jesus is quick to comfort them, which is so weird. Guy floating out on water, trying to comfort terrified people at four in the morning in a boat, and he says, hey, have courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Now, that wouldn't stop the fear from being in me. I'd be like, I'm glad that you're on board with this. I'm still trying to make sense of it, Jesus. But what I love is this. Peter's my favorite. Peter is suddenly emboldened. And he says, Master, this is madness. Master, if it's really you, call me to come out to you on the water. And then Jesus says, sure, go ahead. Which, I mean, the rest of the disciples must have just been like, what what is going on here? This is just such a weird conversation to be, be encountering. And so jumping out of the boat and to everyone's surprise, no doubt, Peter begins to walk on the water towards um, Jesus. But then he looks down at the waves, churning beneath his feet, and he loses his nerve and he starts to sink. And he cries out, save me, Rabbi. 
Now, Jesus being in the saviour business doesn't hesitate. Uh, He reaches down and he grabs his hand and he says to Peter, and I love how the message puts this, he says to Peter, faint heart, what got into you? Isn't that nice? Faint heart, what got into you? Now, in the Gospels, this story is a pointer to Jesus' divinity, his ability to have power over the natural elements, and afterwards the disciples whisper their realization that he may be the Son of God. But just think how Peter felt about this ordeal for a moment, right? We tend to focus on the, on the miracle and we tend to focus on all these things. Just think how Peter felt. He was so cavalier. He always is. Peter's sort of the cavalier, impassioned one. He's so cavalier. And after all, walking on water out to Jesus was his idea. Jesus wasn't suggesting it. It was Peter who came up with the idea at four in the morning that he should walk on water or go out to him. And, uh, and his friends watching from the boat, perhaps he was trying to impress them. I don't know why he wanted to do it. Uh, and then Jesus, his superhero, beckons him forward. So he's stuck. I shouldn't have said that, Peter says. I've made a mistake. I'm caught now. But he looks at his feet. He sees the water lapping on his sandals, and he becomes filled with doubt. And in front of his friends and his rabbi, he begins to panic. He flounders, and in front of everyone, he sinks. Faint heart, what got into you? I mean, how humiliating to sink in front of your friends. Just so humiliating. To come out of the boat with such confidence and to end up panicked and weak and crying out for help and found lacking, it sounds like a classic experience of failure to me. And New Zealand has a really interesting relationship with failure over the years. I don't know if anyone um, remembers this. Um, This is when the All Blacks lost to France in 2007. And... um, I don't know, we had some serious spiritual and emotional issues attached with us for some reason. Uh, My brother-in-law was at the match, and he flew over especially for it from New Zealand, and he's never been to a live rugby match again since. So it was this really... And remember, the All Blacks couldn't come out and and acknowledge it. Um, I mean, it was... like, And it's interesting, that last loss that we had has done nothing like this. You know, this was just... Look at this. In one sense, it's kind of lame. You go, gosh... But it actually struck right a nerve with New Zealand's difficult relationship with failure and trying to work out what what to do with it. Uh, When our teams do well, we shout we won, and when our teams do badly, it's they lost. And so as a country, we don't usually deal with failure well. I don't think we know what to do with it. So what is failure? Well, um, I thought I should define it. And defined simply, it's a lack of success. I quite like that, quite straightforward. Most of you will encounter this at some point, a lack of success. But I'd like to add this to really run home what we're talking around. It is a moment of great disappointment. Not just, I mean, if you fail at something you don't care about, oh well, you just claim you don't care. When you fail at something you don't want to fail at, it's a great disappointment. It's a very elegant little way of putting it. And I don't know, does anyone here hate to fail? Was there anyone here? Well, let's ask it the other way. Does anyone here thrive on failure and quite enjoy it? Right, so that's a better way of putting it for New Zealanders. Um, So I must admit, some people I meet do seem unfazed by the possibility of failing at something. They shrug their shoulders, they get back on the horse. 
But I've shared my experience and St. Peter's experience and the All Blacks' experience of failing. And I wonder how you've experienced failure in your life. I wonder what your biggest failure is. I wonder if I was to say to you, turn to your neighbour, which I won't. Turn to your neighbour, what is your greatest disappointment and the sense of the greatest failure that you've, that you've had? I wonder what your earliest memory of a significant failing was. You know, maybe you entered a competition as a kid, a talent show or a sports competition or some sort of academic test, and you didn't do so as well as you'd hoped. Or maybe as a teenager, um, you asked a girl or a guy out, right? This is a big one for people. The first time they asked someone out, um, and uh, they're, they're, they're said no to, or they're laughed in their face, you know, they're mocked um, for thinking that they're on the same pay grade as them. Um, or maybe as a young adult, you flunked out of university, or you got fired from a job, or you're in a long-term relationship that went sour, right? There's lots of ways, actually, of, of what failure... I realized once that I was failed from a job because I turned up and I got told, oh, last week you signed a casual contract. We'll let you know when you need to come back. They didn't really tell me it was a casual contract. I thought that was a little underhanded. Um, I wonder what your parents' attitude to failure was. I wonder what signals they gave out and what signals you were picking up. Does that make sense? So often parents are giving out signals and then we're picking up signals. They sometimes have nothing to do with each other what's being put out and what's being picked up. But someone will have been giving out some signals about something over what we are. Was your family more uh, concerned with giving things or go, or was it more about always striving to do better? You got an A, but you'll get an A plus next time, right? Was it, was it that kind of thing? What did people in your family get patted on the back for? That's interesting, eh? What kind of things does that happen? And what was seen as shameful? What was seen as embarrassing? Because so many of the people I meet are actually held hostage by the idea that failure is something that is fatal. And that to experience failure is so bad that it must be avoided at all costs. And so we strive to look successful, to make successful decisions, and to be thought of as successful. But here's the, here's the problem. And uh, President Theodore Roosevelt famously uh, said this, and I think it's um, profound. He said, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who is in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of a high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Now, you've probably heard of the author, or many people have, I keep meeting people who haven't, uh, old Brené Brown, and um, her life was so changed by that quote that she named her best-selling book Daring Greatly after those last words. And she came to realize three big realizations uh, that I'd love to share with you because I think they're uh, profound and I've begun to agree with her. Or maybe she agrees with me. I'm not sure which way around it is. I agree with her. Um, she is um, uh, actually, a, I think, a, a, an Anglican lady based in, um, based in America. And the first thing that she realized about failure was, um, was this. Uh, she realized if we want to be courageous and we want to be in the arena, we're going to have to get our butts kicked. There is no option. If you want to be brave and show up in your life, you're going to fail. 
You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. It's guaranteed. At some point it will happen. It's just part of showing up and being courageous with the way we live our lives. So she goes and talks to leaders, leadership experts, and she says, if you're going to do this new venture, um, you will experience failure. And they go, we are prepared for the risk of failure. And she says, I didn't say there was a risk of failure. I said, you will fail. And they said, we're going to have to think about that. Right? So that's the first thing. I think that's very... So if you want to live a courageous life, you're just going to fail. So you can't make failure fatal, otherwise you live a very scared life. Does that make sense? I thought that was quite, quite helpful. The second thing she realized was this, that people who never risk anything but criticize the people who do, don't matter. If you are not in the arena also getting your butt kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. And I thought that's quite interesting, isn't it? So when people come at you and are critical over what you could have done or what you should have done, one question you ask yourself is, well, what's this person doing with their life? And if they're a professional critic, or they don't, you know, they don't know much uh, about it, or they're not living a courageous life, she says, you've got no credibility, so just ignore them. Now, if this person is in the arena, getting their butts kicked, doing their best at life, you might take it on. Does that make sense? But most of the people that have criticized me the most have done nothing in life. So it makes me suddenly feel much less scared of them. I used to work in the radio station. I could deal with critique from my friends. It was the anonymous text messages that did my head in. But what do they know? I don't see them getting up doing a breakfast show, right? So, so that's one of, the, one of the things. And thirdly, uh, she connects courage with a willingness to live vulnerable lives. And she puts it like this. Make sure that goes. There we go. She says, vulnerability is not about winning. It's not about losing. It's about having the courage to show up and be seen and not always having all the perfect answers. I think being vulnerable feels dangerous and it feels scary and it feels terrifying. But I don't think it's as dangerous or scary or terrifying as getting to the end of our lives and then wondering, what if I would have had more courage and shown up? So she redefines true failure as getting to the end of your life having been petrified of failure and so not trying anything so if any of us are living our lives in fear of failure it's worth taking the time to try and face up to what lies might be fueling those fears um, I think the devil loves lies and one of the reasons the devil loves lies is it's like a passive investment you kind of just have to kind of get one lie in there and he kind of sits back with his hands behind his head and the, the business is done because we tend to ferment on them and they sort of do their own work. It's a, one, it's a, it's a very easy strategy. And I think that's part of it is um, the devil loves to keep us feeling scared, keeping, keep us feeling uh, fearful and there's nothing like failure that kind of is the great boogeyman that sort of scares us from um, stepping out. So let me talk a little bit around what those lies might be for you. Perhaps you believe the lie that your worth is entirely defined by your achievements, which is I am what I do. And the fear of looking or feeling incompetent feels unbearable. And so as your life has progressed, you've only taken on things that you know you'll be successful at Right, So you don't take risks. You go, can I do very well at this? Yes, and that's the only thing you do. Because you don't look like an idiot. And you've worked out your, your field of expertise. And that often comes from kids I've met who were praised early on and they learnt 
don't fail, right? They learn, I've just got to do things that I know I can do very well at. And, and so we might have avoided the things um, that we'll fail at because failing would make us feel weak or stupid. I wonder if you hate feeling weak or stupid. Uh, or perhaps you believe the lie that your worth is entirely defined by other pe- what other people think of you. Uh, I am what others think of me. And so the idea of experiencing public humiliation or embarrassment or, say, letting people down. You know when you fail and you let lots of people down? You know, it's, I wouldn't mind if it was just me failing, but so many people depend on me. And it's that that I'm going to feel bad about. It seems unbearable. So you've avoided doing things where you could fail at for that reason. Or perhaps uh, you believe the lie that I am what I have and that you don't think you have what it takes to succeed at something. And so you've avoided ever going after something because you think it will just end up in failure. You know that sense where you're like, other people are talented enough to do things, but not me, so I might as well not even try. I think some, some parents often put pressure on kids that they've got to succeed, and others have put pressure on to say, you will never succeed. So it can go both ways, and it becomes the same kind of fear of failure. But I was thinking about this topic, and um, it got me, oh, there they go, that's very good, gosh, I am what I have, or I don't have. I was thinking about this topic, and it got me thinking, I think this is the most important question you can ask yourself around failure, because I'd never asked myself this. I wonder... I wonder what God thinks of our failures. I wonder what God's opinion is on failure, and I wonder if God is as scared of failure as I am. How does God feel about your failures? You might be ashamed of them. Is God also just horribly ashamed of your failures? as well. What is God's opinion in all this? And it seems to me that God isn't anywhere near as scared of failure as we are. God was willing to send his son to die on the cross. What looked on first impression to be the biggest failure, uh, people saying he was weak and pathetic, a disappointment. They were mocking him and his kingdom. There's a famous piece of graffiti that they found of a donkey on a cross. where everyone was sort of mocking, saying, this is what you Christians believe, a donkey on a cross. Who dies on a cross? So this total sense of, of a failure, a feeling of failure on the cross. And then I noticed that God seems to have this weird preference of using failures to do his work. Have you noticed that? Noah got drunk. Sarah got laughed at. Uh, Sarah laughed at God. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Jonah ran away from God. Peter denied Christ. All the apostles argued about who was going to be the greatest. So God isn't afraid of our failures and shortcomings. He's not surprised by them. And he often likes to use them in surprising ways, in helpful ways, and that our failures can refine us rather than define us. And God actually loves losers. Isn't that interesting? That God actually seems to love doing work through those who have lost or those who haven't done that well. Uh, One of my favorite mantras is um, God cares infinitely more about who you're becoming rather than what you're doing. And nothing helps to shape you quite like experiencing failure, does it? There's nothing like who you are when you go through a profound failure that actually is like a furnace that begins to shape your, your character and your identity. And I think God wants you to have the courage to step out of the boat. God wants you to have the courage to step into the arena, 
God wants you to have the courage to run the race. Does that make sense? That's actually what God would love for you to do. I think God's proud of me for running that race and coming last in spite of being mocked, right? I think God's like, yeah, that's what life's about. You got up and you gave it a go and you actually did your best in this, right? So I think God's actually is proud of me in that. And I think if I'd known God was proud of me in that moment, I probably would have had a significantly different attitude to what it looks like to face failure in the future. You know, a a central part of the good news of Jesus is that God invites us to get off the sidelines of life and to get involved as God goes about his redemption agenda of the world. We're invited to be his hands and his feet, to seek first the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. If, uh, If you show up for the work of the kingdom, at some point you're going to fail. Just because you're doing God's work doesn't even mean you're not going to fail. Like, it's just inevitable that as you try things, failure's coming. And so it's not like a hypothetical that, that it might not happen to you. It will happen. And it's a question of what we do in those, in those spaces. You're going to experience disappointment. Things aren't going to go as you'd hoped. It's just part of what it means to show up. And if you believe following Jesus means your life will always go perfectly to plan, you are deluded. And it's, it's, at some point you wake up to that delusion. I've had to. You know, I thought it would all go well, and then you discover it doesn't. But actually, that's not what the good news was ever about. The Bible's full of stories of it going badly. And so what I've had to do over the past few years is really lean into some of the lies I've believed about failure and some of my avoidance of failing. And, um, and instead, I've had to work hard to replace some of those old lies with some truths that I've found have served God and served me better. So as I finish, I just want to share some of those with you. Here's what I try to tell myself nowadays when I step out and I take a risk, right? I got up. I've, I've preached, I preached a pretty edgy sermon at our Synod Cathedral service, and I thought to myself, do I really want to do this in front of 250 of my colleagues and friends? And no, I didn't. But I thought, well, I'm going to be courageous. Does that make sense? I was like, this could go very badly. I understand that the dean had a funny look on his face, but I still did it. You know, I got out and I I gave it a go. And this is what I do when I step out in every fiber of my being, taking me back to Wakefield Primary School. It says, don't do it. We've learned this the bad way. And so I I have to share. And this is what I say to myself. I wonder if any of these resonate with you. You know, if I'm going to live a courageous life for God, sometimes I'm going to fail. I just accept it. But failure isn't fatal. Failure is actually just feedback. How about that? That sounds quite good. It could be an experience that I get to learn from, and then I get to share that with others. Because if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Till I get good at it. Ah. I could actually, if something's worth doing, you can't be instantly good. My daughter turns up to the piano at uh, my parent-in-law's house and she hits a few keys and then she says it's broken. Well, as it turns out, Edith, you have to practice. You can't instantly be good at the piano. So if something's worth doing, Edith, it's worth doing badly until you get good at it. So you're going to have to be terrible at playing the piano if you want to to do it. Um, and, uh, And I'd much rather be known at my funeral... Gosh, this is a hard one to 
honestly say, but I think I'd much rather be known at my funeral as a courageous failure than a successful coward. I, th I think that's what I'd rather... I would rather. I'm just trying to get my body to align with that. <laughs> so I like that idea. Um, but yes, it would be difficult. But that's who I do want to become. So that's who I think God's inviting me to become. I wonder if God's inviting you um, to become uh, that person as well. And ultimately, God loves me exactly the same, whether I'm the biggest success story or the biggest loser story. Actually, my identity is not at play here. God loves me the same. And so just because I might have failed doesn't actually mean I'm a failure. Just because I made a mistake doesn't mean I'm a mistake. And on a good day, I then take a breath and I step out of the boat into the arena once again. I wonder if God's invitation for you this evening is to make friends with failure. Because my prayer for all of you at Antioch is that each of you no longer view failure as something that's unbearable and to be feared and to be avoided at all costs, but instead we begin to see failure for what it is. It can be a gift. Failure can be a gift. It can be a helpful teacher so that we can do better next time and so that we can grow through our disappointments. And it's an unavoidable part of what it means to live a passionate, engaged, and courageous life following Jesus in the world. And so may Antioch come to be known not for its successful cowards, but rather for its courageous failures. Amen.